Daniel chapter 10 is uh, kind of kicks off the last vision uh, in the book of in the book of Daniel. And in fact, Daniel chapters 10 through 12 are kind of the only three chapters that um, that kind of function as one unit. All of the other chapters in the book uh, are basically isolated uh, units all by themselves. Daniel chapter one was Daniel and his friends in the royal courts of Babylon. Daniel chapter two was Nebuchadnezzar and the statue, the dream about the statue. Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, the fiery furnace. Uh, chapter four, the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five, uh, King Belshazzar and the writing on the wall at his party. Daniel six, uh, Daniel and the lion's den. So first six chapters are, are six different self-contained units of stories and things that happened to Daniel and his friends in exile. Daniel chapters 7 through 12 are, uh, 7, 8, and 9 are three self-contained accounts of visions that Daniel had. And then Daniel 10 through 12 is uh, basically one kind of unified uh, account of a fourth vision that Daniel had along the way. So six narrative stories and then four uh, visions of Daniel. That's kind of the, the outlay, the outline of the, the book. And so today in Daniel chapter 10, uh, Daniel is going to have a terrifying vision of a man. Um, and then he's going to dialogue with, uh, with an angel about, uh, you know, what is and what has been happening in the spiritual realm. So it's kind of a, an interesting and, and a fascinating and sometimes a, a scary uh, chapter. Daniel 11 next week, um, that same angel kind of uh, continues and goes into this extended, uh, ridiculously detailed prophecy about the events that are going to take place in the coming, uh, in the coming centuries, uh, most notably uh, through in the, the empire of, of Greece. Uh, but very detailed prophecies on uh, Persia and Greece. Daniel chapter 12, the last chapter, kind of fast forwards to the end of all things, essentially, looking at the final resurrection, people are raised from the grave, everlasting life and salvation for some, everlasting judgment and punishment for, for others. And so kind of one big, long uh, vision that we're going to look at over the course of three weeks, this week and then the next, um, the next two. And so uh, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to just work our way through Daniel chapter uh, 10 this morning and kind of uh, consider together what the Lord uh, wants to teach us through it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your authoritative inherent, infallible, inspired, God-breathed word that you have spoken to us. We thank you that your word is entirely and completely true. And Lord, we come before you this morning uh, to listen to it and to sit under it and to acknowledge the weight of it and its authority in our lives, in the life of our church. 
God, we do not presume to stand in authority over your word, making declarations about whether uh, it is profitable or, or reliable or not. Instead, we humbly sit under the authority of your word and invite you to speak to us and invite you to confront us and convict us of sin and then give us grace to respond to the promptings of your Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts and our lives. So we ask your blessing on these next few minutes and pray that you would speak to us and give us grace to hear. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, uh, who was named Belteshazzar. So uh, the year then is uh, 536 BC when Daniel received this, uh, this word. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So this word that, that we're going to read about, we're going to see in the next three chapters, uh, is, is specifically about great conflict. It's about um, military battles. It's about geopolitical uh, tension, tribes and nations warring against each other. Now, uh, in the uh, here's what was going on in 536 BC, specifically in Daniel's life and in the life of Daniel's people, uh, the Israelites. Um, just a few years prior, um, the King Cyrus had decreed that the people of Israel are to return to their homeland and they can begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So that's great, great news. In fact, we can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so two years before this, in the first year of King Cyrus, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the prophet of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing and said, Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So that happened in year one. And then this vision that we're going to see uh, in the coming verses and chapters happened in year three. Now, by the time year three rolled around, by the time um, Daniel is having this vision that we're going to see in 10, 11, and 12, things had not panned out exactly like they wanted them to. Right, so, so a lot of uh, mo- a lot of momentum, a lot of motivation, kind of the honeymoon phase in year one. Right after, I mean, it's been seventy years we've been in exile, and Cyrus says you can go back to Jerusalem, you can rebuild the city, the temple. Yay, that's great news. But when they got there, they found that it was easier said than done. When they got there, they found that there are all, like we've been gone for seventy years. So if you leave your house for seventy years and then come back, there might be someone else. Someone else might be like, no one's living here, so I'm just going to move in, right? Or, so, like, uh, so Israel comes back, and all, those, all of their neighbors were like, yeah, we're not really sure that we want to just give you that land back. We, it's, you know, I'm 50, so you, I, you've, this land has been vacant my whole life, so it's based it's as much mine as it is yours. And so they came back, and there was a lot of tension. A lot of their neighbors on all of the sides were pressing in on them and fighting them, and so they were having to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall 
while also having to fight off enemies that were uh, attacking them. And they were also trying to eke out uh, a living. They were extra trying to, you know, plant and grow crops so that they could eat food in, in what was to them effectively a brand new land. They were essentially, I mean, they were back in their homeland, back in their promised land. But, you know, if you're under 70 years old, you're, this is a brand new area to you. And so they're in a new land, feel like sojourners. They're trying to plant and grow. They're trying to build their city. They're trying to ward off enemies. It was a hard couple of years. And, um, and, and that people were losing momentum and people were discouraged. And so actually, uh, we're in year three, but, uh, the, the whole rebuilding process took somewhere, uh, you know, it, it stalled out for about 15 years and kind of picks up, uh, later in some other books in the old Testament. So in year three of this 15 year season of discouragement, people are discouraged and they're sad and they're grumpy and they're angry and kind of feeling like Israel did when they left Egypt and they get out into the wilderness and they're like, this is terrible. We would rather be slaves in Egypt than be here, uh, you know, wandering in the wilderness, dying out here because we don't have any food or anything to, to drink. And so people were discouraged. Daniel was anxious. And now Daniel is wrestling internally with whether uh, this um, effort is actually going to stand the test of time, which prompts him in verse 2, to mourn and fast and pray. It says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, and I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So Daniel doesn't, uh, this isn't like a, he fasts, or he, he, you know, but not, not a, you know, not like a total fast where you eat nothing, but like a partial fast where you kind of cut out uh, everything that tastes good, eat wine, things that are sweet or savory. You pretty much just eat, you know, bland, tasteless things, enough to kind of give your body the calories that it needs to sustain itself, and that's it. So he's doing that for, for three weeks, for 21 uh, days, kind of reminiscent of what Daniel did in chapter one. Right? In Daniel chapter one, he comes, and so again, like we're going to see a lot of parallels between four and five and between uh, three and six and between two and uh, seven and eight and between one and nine, 10 and 11. So um, yeah, Daniel chapter one, they're in the royal courts and they say, we're not going to eat this, this um, you know, this rich food that the king has. We're going to eat just vegetables and water. Here, Daniel is um, fasting, no, no meat, no, um, you know, wine, just, you know, land tasteless, uh, tasteless things. Because he recognizes that there are particular circumstances in our lives. There are special occasions when you should not just go on living normally, acting as if everything is normal, that there are times in the human experience, times of intense grief and sadness and uh, suffering and turmoil. There are times where uh, we as people who've been created by God are in particular need of the mercy of God. And one of the things that God has given us to sustain us and to help us to persevere through those uniquely difficult times is the spiritual discipline of fasting. Fasting is a fairly simple principle 
understand, to, to define. It's just the ab- it's abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. I think it's a, it's a, you know, a fairly accurate definition of fasting, the abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. The idea behind fasting is that your, your body needs food. You need to take in calories so that you can have energy, so that your body can metabolize the food that you eat and have sustained and keep on. Your body needs food. And we all know that our bodies need food intuitively. No one has to tell you that you need food. We all just know it biologically. Every few hours, your body gets hungry and you want to eat uh, food. So we all get that. Here's another thing that's true about human beings. Uh, your body needs food, that much we've established, but what's also true is that your soul needs God. Your body needs food, your soul needs God. You need God's mercy, you need God's grace, you need God to empower you to live a Christian life, you need God to give you wisdom and discernment to make good choices, you need the Holy Spirit to help you have victory over sin and act in ways that are godly. You need God to convict you of sin when you fall prey to it so that he can give you the gift of repentance. Your soul needs God. Your body needs food. Your soul needs God. Now, here's the thing. Your body is wired to be perpetually, keenly aware of the reality that it needs food. You don't need to be reminded. Your own biology is going to tell you that you need food. We have a remarkable ability to remember that we need food without even trying. And because of sin, because of the fall, because of the effects of sin, because of the doctrine of total depravity, we have an innate ability to remember that we need food, and we have an innate ability to forget that we need God. And to forget that God is the one who gave us everything that we have. We have this kind of tendency to think, oh, I, I can take care of myself. I'm strong. I'm smart. I'm capable. Everything that I have is the result of my excellence and my hard work. And I've got this busy life that I'm constantly distracted by all of these these things. And so we forget that we need God. God gives us the spiritual disciplines to help us remind ourselves that we need him. That we come to church, so that we can sit under God's word, so that we can pray together, sing together, encourage one another. And so that we can remind each other that we need God and that we have God. We read read the Bible and pray, but in addition to prayer and Bible reading, convince God has given us a tool called fasting. And the idea behind the idea behind fasting, the reason why fasting is is basically works, is um, is because you're tethering the thing that you, that is very difficult to remember that you need God with another thing that's very difficult to forget that you need food. Right? If you're if you're like me, um, you know, if you you know, wake up one morning and you you know, you have a particularly busy day and you're just kind of, you know, rushing through one thing to the next, one appointment to the next, uh, one task to the next, get out of the dress, get it ready, off to school, whatever it is, you know, go to work, you know, but you can you can easily make it through the entire morning, through the afternoon, into the evening without ever having thought of God once. Because life is so busy and there's so many things distracting you, but you probably won't do that with food. If even if the busiest day that you have, once you miss, you know, once you get miss lunch and you're into the late afternoon, you'll remember that you're hungry. Your body is wired to do that. So, 
I was reading this about a, 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 a strategy, like self-help books uh, talk about a strategy to overcome bad habits called temptation bundle. Temptation bundling is where you take a uh, you take a thing, a bad thing that you don't like or that you, you have you're having difficulty quitting, but instead of just trying to quit it, it you know, just brute force white knuckle quit this bad habit. It says take that bad habit and bundle it with another thing, either something that's good for you or something that you don't like doing, and maybe just kind of let your own biology kind of recalibrate itself. And so, um, you know. You could like, you know, instead of saying, instead of saying, I'm never going to eat another cookie again for the rest of my life, just say, every time I eat a cookie, I'm going to do a hundred push-ups. I'm going to stop everything I'm doing until I do a hundred push-ups and see how many cookies you eat. Right? Um, there one one guy said that he wired his uh, television to uh, exercise bikes, so that whenever he was, whenever he would stop pedaling, his television cut off. That was a good way for him to cut out screens. It reminded me of something that I, I uh, saw years ago, but I thought was really funny and really uh, interesting. Called up, it was a smart alarm clock that you you hook it up to the internet and you log in your bank account number and you log in um, log in charities that you hate. And every time you hit the snooze button, it will donate money to like a charity or an organization that you know, like the political guy that you like the least or some charity you know is a scam that they just, you know, take all of your money and use it for their board members to, you know, go on fancy vacations or something or, I don't know, like, you know, some charity that's making scarves to put on whale and you're like, whatever, like some, and so you, and then every time you hit the snooze button, it's like $10 just went to that charity, you're like, oh, I see how long you sleep in, right? Because that's temptation, by the way, the temptation do this thing that I really want to do, if I bundle it with this thing that I don't want to do or that's painful or that's good for me, then it will it'll kind of make that whole thing. It'll either help you overcome the bad thing or it'll help you cultivate the good thing or both. Fasting, fasting is not that, but fasting operates on a similar principle of bundling this thing that's easy to forget that you need God and that your soul uh, it literally needs time with the Lord. It needs to pray. It needs silence. It needs solitude. It needs meditation. It needs to remember God's word. It needs to meditate on God's word. Bundle that that you find easy to forget with this other thing that you find impossible to forget, which is I need a sandwich. I'm hungry right now. And so if you're, so fasting says, allow yourself to be hungry. Allow that hunger to remind you that you need God and to drive you uh, into the presence of God so that you can pray and uh, cultivate that spiritual discipline in your soul. So again, it can look like this, Daniel, you know, one and 10, kind of partial, like fasting from certain kinds of food. It could look like uh, Jesus in Matthew 4, fasting from all kinds of uh, food. You know, it can, it can take different forms, but the general principle is uh, that you're abstaining from food for the purpose of, uh, you know, spiritual some sort of spiritual benefit. And so if you've never fasted or if you don't regularly fast, then I would commend the practice to you. I would, I would come let me, if you're, if you're interested in fasting, never done it, interested about it, come let me know. I can give you a, a book or recommend something to, to read for you. 
or we could plan a time to fast together, miss, you know, skip a meal together, and uh, spend that time to, to pray, pray for one another, or pray for something in, per, in particular. So, that's fasting. So Daniel is fasting. He's in the middle of this three-week-long partial fast from uh, food that he particularly enjoys. People have gone back to Jerusalem. They're enduring violence and opposition. They're discouraged. He's discouraged. He's fasting and he's praying. And then in the midst of all that, he has this vision. In On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris River, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, I alone saw the vision, and the men who were with me, they did not see it. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and they hid themselves. And so I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So Daniel's by this river, Tigris River is in modern-day Iraq, which is a little bit east of Jerusalem, kind of near where the Babylonian and Persian empires were based, where, where uh, Daniel is. He sees this man, this terrifying vision of this man, if this description of this man sounds familiar to you, uh, it should. It's, it's very similar to two descriptions that we see elsewhere in Scripture. One is Ezekiel chapter 1. He says, as I look, uh, behold, a stormy wind came out of the, the great cloud. Fire was flashing around, and there were four creatures. And above them was this massive expanse, and above that expanse, uh, over their heads was the likeness of a throne. And the appearance of sapphire and seated on the likeness of a throne with the likeness of a human appearance and upward had the appearance of his waist I saw with gleaming metal like the appearance of fire and clothes all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw it was the appearance of fire and there was brightness all around him and his appearance was bright and brilliant all around like a rainbow such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel sees something remarkably similar to this. And he says, I saw the glory of the Lord uh, speaking to me. Also, Revelation chapter 1, right? John says, then I turned to see the voice of one speaking to me. And I, I turned and saw one like the son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet was like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the ruler of many waters. In the sight of his hand, he held seven stars, or in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his feet came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell as though I was dead. And then he laid his hand on me, and he said, Fear not, I am the first and the last living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So John describes something also similar to Daniel. He says it was the Son of Man. It was the one who was dead and who is now alive, the one who holds the keys. It's Jesus. It was the, it was the resurrected, exalted, glorious uh, 
Jesus Christ is who John saw. So, so Ezekiel says, I saw something like Daniel. It was the glory of the Lord in human form. Jesus, or John says, I saw something like Daniel. It was the resurrected, exalted Christ. And so if you hear that and think, oh, well, then maybe that probably sounds like maybe Daniel, who saw something similar to both of those guys, who uh, it seems pretty evident that one saw the pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of Christ and one saw the resurrected, exalted Christ, that Daniel saw that as well, that the person that he sees here is the pre-incarnate Christ in his heavenly glory. Seems like a likely conclusion to come to, you might think. But some other scholars are like, wait, wait, no, no, that because uh, of some of the things that this that this being, this man is going to say later on in the chapter. He's going to be talking about how uh, he had this task that he was sent on that he was not able to complete because he wasn't strong enough, and so he needed to enlist the help of someone else to come help him. Another heavenly being named Michael who came, and so it's like, wait a second, Jesus is God. God is omnipotent. God can do anything. There's nothing that's too difficult for Jesus. So almost everyone agrees that uh, whoever it is that's in verses 11 and following is not Jesus. That's an angel a really powerful, really strong angel, but an a angel that's not infinite and omnipotent. He has a, he, there's, there's a limit to his strength, and that limit was tested by whoever his adversary was. So the question is, uh, you know, like, if, if uh, the guys who think that the, the description in verses 5 through 9 that we've just read is a pre-incarnate Christ, the glory of God, Jesus himself, like Ezekiel 1 and like Revelation 1, which again, I think is viable, uh, and they have to explain what, like, then whoever, and then in this Christ manifestation, right after verse 9, just exits stage left. And we don't see him leave. We don't know where he went. There's no mention of him. There's the Irish goodbye, right? No, doesn't have to, doesn't stay where he's leaving, just is gone. And then another being, another guy, shows up out of nowhere, a guy that's not Jesus, shows up between verses 9 and verse 10, and we don't even see him arrive. There's no mention of him arriving. So that's like a weird question. Like, like why didn't the author uh, mention the fact that whoever that, that Jesus from verses 1 through 9 has left and that the angel from verses 10 and following has arrived? It's like just a weird, a weird reading of the text. But the other guys say... Now, uh, verses 5 through 9 is not Jesus. It's the same guy. They're, they didn't have to mention anyone leaving or, or arriving because it's one guy. The same guy here, the same guy we see in the second half of the chapter. But the question they have to answer is, uh, why does this guy look so much like the person from Ezekiel 1 and the person from Revelation 1 who is clearly Jesus? Right? Why do the descriptions match so closely? Why do they elicit the same kinds of responses from the people that are helping this guy not be Jesus, given how similar the two are? That's the two sides. That's the two questions that they have to answer. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I figure I'll just ask Jesus when I meet him. But I don't know. If you're really interested, I mean, come talk to me after the service. We can talk for a long time about, you know, who exactly this figure is, because this is all we really see of him. I'm not entirely sure, but what we do know is that Daniel sees this man, either the pre-incarnate 
uh, glorious Christ or an angel that is superbly, incredibly otherworldly powerful, finite albeit, but still incredibly more powerful and more glorious than anything that we've ever seen here in this world. Daniel sees that person and then just passes out, falls down on his face as if he's dead, deep sleep, face in the dirt, totally unconscious. Then verse 10, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So someone, either the same guy or the switcheroo, a different guy, uh, picks Daniel up and he goes from his face lying face down to on his hands and knees and uh, says, O Daniel, man greatly loved. This angelic being sent from God with a message from God. The first words that he says to Daniel are that you are greatly loved. Which is the same thing that the angel Gabriel said to Daniel back in chapter 9, verse 23. The same thing that this angel is going to say to Daniel again later in chapter 10 in verse 19. That you are greatly loved. Right Of all the things that... I could say to Daniel of all the ways that I could address Daniel, all of the things that I could, um, you know, talk about with Daniel. You're an Israelite. You're a leader. You're a ruler. You're a government official. You're a, uh, a victim of human trafficking. You are a victim of exploitation and, and abuse, whatever. You have a long resume of things that are true of you. You can interpret dreams. You've received special revelation and visions from God. There's all sorts of things that are true about you, but the angel apparently thinks that the truest thing about Daniel or the most important thing that needs to be mentioned about Daniel is that he's loved by God. The sovereign, infinite Lord of heaven and earth knows Daniel, cares about Daniel, thinks about Daniel, is invested in Daniel's well-being. Reminds me a little bit of the Apostle John in the New Testament, who also had quite the resume. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He shaped the New Testament church for centuries to come. He took Jesus' own mother in as his own mother and cared for her in his old in her old age. He received also received special glorious revelation from uh, God and the the form of the book of Revelation. He wrote a, a huge chunk of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John could have referred to himself with any number of re respectable, impressive qualifiers, and yet he constantly referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Not because he was bragging that Jesus loves me more than he loves you. But rather, it was almost out of a sense of astonishment that I can't believe that Jesus loves me. Jesus needs nothing from me. Jesus uh, has everything. He is self-sufficient. He has everything he needs for all of eternity within himself. He has no reason to love me, no vested interest in loving me. And yet Jesus loves me. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. I am greatly loved. You think about yourself. Of all of the things that could come to mind when you think about yourself, what, what is it that comes to mind? Education, 
qualifications, characteristics, attributes, competencies, accomplishments, job, income, family, beliefs, convictions, hobbies, right? All of these things that you that that would maybe be the first quality, you know, characteristic, the first descriptor if someone was to talk about you. Is it any of that or is it that I'm loved by God? When you think about God, what attributes come to mind to you about God? Sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's mighty. He's strong. He's powerful. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's holy. He's righteous. All of those are true. What's also true is that God loves you. God cares about you. If you and I have this high and soaring view of the sovereignty of God and the glory of God, but we don't also have a high and soaring view of the love that God has for us, the kindness and the compassion that God has shown to us, then we do not have a high view of God. God is sovereign and powerful, absolutely to be sure, and God loves his people. God loves you more than you can know or imagine or or wrap your mind around for all of eternity. You are greatly loved. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken these words to me, I stood up trembling. He's gone from face down, on his stomach, face in the dirt, up to all fours, standing, trembling, freaking out. Now he is standing up, upright. Just the prospect of hearing this angel speak, hearing his booming voice, terrifying, and Daniel is afraid. Verse 12, and then he said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So I get that you're afraid, but you don't need to be afraid. I get that you're upset. I get that you're anxious. I know that you've been fasting and mourning and praying. I hear all of that, but you don't need to be because I have come here to answer your prayers which Daniel's probably thinking, great, thanks, a little late. I've been, I've, been, dude, I've been fasting and mourning and praying for three weeks, right? If you're as powerful as you appear to be, right, the most powerful being that I could ever possibly imagine and so intimidating that when you speak, I fall down, I'm trembling. If you're that powerful, then why, why did it take you? I could, get, I could get anywhere in the world in three weeks. Buy a plane ticket. Take me a couple of hours. Let's say this guy three weeks to get to Daniel where he where he is. Verse 13. 
the prince of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, but the vision is for days yet to come. Daniel, three weeks ago, when you started fasting and mourning and praying, I set out to come to you to give you this vision that I'm here to give you, to, to you know, encourage your soul, to tell you about what's going to happen to you and your people in the days to come. But it took me 21 days to get there because I've been, uh, I was confronted by and I've been doing battle with the, this, the prince of Persia. So some other different angelic being, rather an angelic being that presumably has rebelled against God, meaning a demonic being, and one that is particularly associated with or that seems to have been assigned to the Persian Empire. Whoever that is, this, this rebellious angel, this demonic figure that's been assigned to, he is the demon, as it were, of Persia, got in this angel's way and fought against him and tried to stop him from getting to Daniel. So, again, this is, all, you know, this is all kind of pretty out, pretty out there stuff, but um, I mean, we can, we can discern a few things, right? We can discern that there are angelic beings, there are these heavenly non, like these beings from the heavenly spiritual realm that are different from and, and, you know, more stronger than, bigger than, more glorious than what we see here in the physical realm. There's good ones that come from God. They serve God, like the one that's talking to uh, Daniel right now, if it's Gabriel or not, and, and like Michael, who's mentioned here. There's also bad ones who've rebelled. So at some point, before God created the world, we don't see it mentioned explicitly in Scripture, but it must have happened. We can just derive it. We can intuit it. But at some point before God created the world, God created the angelic realm. I don't know how many angels he created, but presumably a whole lot of them. I don't know. A whole lot of them. And then at some point after God created the angelic realm, Satan rebelled against Satan was an angel. He rebelled against God, and he took some portion of the angelic realm with him. And so from that point forward, and including right now, there is this massive number of godly angels that are serving God, worshiping God, and, and kind of being dispatched by God to look out for the people of God. And there are a massive number of rebellious angels or demons that are actively rebelling against God and seeking to do violence to the people of, of God. What we also can derive from this text is that of those angels that have been dispatched by God and of those demons that have been dispatched by Satan, many of them are assigned, presumably by God himself and by Satan himself, to specific tasks or even to specific people, right? The angel Michael, in verse 13, says, well, one of the chief princes, so there must be some sort of hierarchy, and Michael is kind of close to the top of it, but it also says uh, in uh, chapter 10, verse 21, later on, uh, he refers to Michael as your prince. And then again in chapter 12, verse 1, he says that Michael has charge of your people. So apparently Michael 
is an angel that has specifically been dispatched by God to look after the nation of Israel. Maybe in a similar way to whoever this guy is that was fighting against this guy was specifically dispatched by Satan to have charge over or influence over the kingdom of Persia. So, it's entirely possible. I mean, we're kind of kind of speculation, kind of conjecture, but it's entirely possible that some nations, or maybe most nations, or maybe every single nation throughout human history, uh, might have had an angel assigned by God to look after it and to see to it that God's will is done in and among that nation to see to it that that nation's trajectory unfolds how God wants it to. And it's entirely possible that some nations, or maybe most nations, or maybe every nation, might actually have a demon assigned to it by Satan, whose job is to oppose God and to influence that nation and cause them to oppose God and to try to do violence to the people in that nation that God loves. So, you know, this is a whole different... This gives us a whole different perspective on reality, but also on um, nations, how they rise and fall, and politics, and geopolitical, international relations, and, and wars. I mean, based on Daniel 10, it's entirely possible that when two nations go to war with each other, it's not just a physical war between two nations, which it is, we see it in the news, but it's also entirely possible that there's actually a spiritual war taking place between angelic beings and demonic beings that are assigned to those respective nations. The demonic beings are trying to ensure that all parties involved rebel against God as much as possible. And the angelic beings are trying to ensure that everything happens according to God's perfect sovereign plan. Daniel 10 seeks to imply that there is far more going on in the spiritual realm than we might initially realize or assume just from looking at the physical world around us. Which tracks, right? That tracks with Second um, Kings chapter 6 with Elijah, when he's surrounded by all of these enemies and his servant is freaking out. And Elijah says, if you can only see what I see, and he prays and prays that God would open uh, the servant's eyes, and when he does, uh, he sees tons and tons of horses and chariots of fire surrounding him, protecting them, that the guy had no idea were there. There's this, there's this whole other spiritual realm, things that are happening in the spiritual realm that I didn't even realize were happening, kind of happening unbeknownst to me. It tracks with Hebrews chapter 13, where the author says, he instructs the reader to show love to one another and show hospitality to Strangers. And the reason he says why you should do that is because you never know when you might actually be interacting with an angel without even being like a secret chopper, right? Without being aware of it. So it's entirely possible. I don't know. It's entirely possible that there are specific angels assigned to specific people or people groups, and that those angels, perhaps from time to time, hide their glory disguise themselves as regular human beings and discreetly interact with people without those people knowing that they are angels. I don't, I don't know what to do with this information. Like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't get weird about it. I wouldn't, like, 
go around asking, you know, like, are you a cop? Like, are, are you an angel? You wouldn't go around asking people that. Pick up on some walk. But I think it's true, and I think it's important for us to realize that the spiritual realm, the angelic realm, is probably far bigger and far more comprehensive and far more interconnected with the physical realm that we occupy than we realize. I wouldn't be surprised if when you, when I, when we die and go to heaven, it's entirely possible that we look back on the events of our lives and realize that some of the people that we met or interacted with were actually angels. So, Daniel's been fasting and praying for three weeks. This angel comes to him, says, I was coming, I would have been there right when you started fasting and praying, but this jerk demon got in my way, and he kept me uh, from coming to you for 21 days. But eventually, Michael, this other angel that is either, that presumably is stronger and more powerful than this one came, and he, like, overcame me, you know, helped me overcome that guy, get around him so that I could get here to you. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me, According to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I was mute. And he was like, I, just, I can't even. Like, I just need a minute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come to me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. He's like, I am so overwhelmed by you and who you are and what you look like and what your voice sounds like and what you're telling me that I have zero strength to do or say. I can't, I can't do or say anything. I can't even listen to anything. That's how completely zapped I am. Verse 18, again, uh, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. So I had no strength. I didn't even have strength to listen. He strengthens me and he says, O man greatly loved, there's that phrase again, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke, I was strengthened. And I said, okay, now I have some strength. Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Verse 20, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you, what is inscribed in the book of truth? There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So to get here to you, I had to get around the demonic being that was assigned to or in charge of Persia. I got around him, but apparently he's still there. An active person is still the dominant superpower at the time. Cyrus is the king of it. So... That guy, that angel, that that demon, that that being is still there. So I have to go back and I have to overcome him and kind of put him down and out once and for all. And then once I do, another dominant, another superpower is going to kind of arise, which is Greece, and they are going to be, they're going to have a, a, a demonic figure that kind of angelic. I mean, we don't really know, but they're going to have uh, this spiritual being that is uh, there with with them. Persia is going to fall. Greece is going to arise, and that's going to be what we see next week in Daniel 11. All of Persia, and then the, the arisal of, and then a bunch of really specific prophecies about things that happen uh, in the nation, the, the empire of Greece, and specifically two of the four uh, kingdoms 
that kind of after Alexander the Great, the, the Greek Empire is going to divide it into four, and it's going to zoom in on two of them. Uh, and we're going to look at those in, in very uh, specific detail. Same angel that's speaking here is going to give details about the nation of Greece, and then also details that stretch all the way into eternity future, which really kind of is the main point of application that I think we should take home from a chapter like this. Which is that, well, two things really, but uh, that God is sovereign for all of human history. God knows the end from the beginning. God ordains the end from the beginning. God is constantly working everything in human history out according to his perfect will. Which means if that's happening on a grand scale, it's also happening on a small scale in your life. Everything that happens in your life is happening because of God's perfect plan, every inconvenience, every setback, every medical complication, everything that annoys you or frustrates you or costs you time and money. God is sovereign over all of that. God allowed all of that on purpose for a reason. I don't know what the reason is, but I know that God has a reason that he is working all things out for your good according to his perfect plan. So application God is sovereign over all things, but application two is that not only is God sovereign and big and strong and omnipotent and distant and transcendent and out there, but also God is imminent and he's right here with you. He cares about you. He loves you so much so that he tells you the things that are going to happen before they happen. Genesis 18, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham the things that I'm about to do? The implied answer is no. I've, I've chosen him, and I want to give him insight into what's going to happen. John 15, Jesus says, I don't call you servants, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I call you friends, and everything that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. God is big and mighty and sovereign and out there, his purposes will stand, and God is near and close and here with you, and he cares about you. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sin and to secure salvation and eternal life for you. God wants to communicate with you. God wants to give you insight into what he is doing in the world because he considers you to be his friend. God is big and strong and mighty and transcendent, and God is imminent and near and close and communicative, and he loves us, and he saves us. So that's what we see in Daniel 10, is that God is both sovereign over everything and that God loves you. You are greatly loved. God draws near to you to communicate with you and to save you. We'll pick up in chapter 11 next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, incomparable sovereignty that you know everything, that you uh, ordain everything, that you orchestrate everything in human history, in our lives, in our 
families, that you are the mighty king, that nothing happens apart from your sovereign will. And we thank you that you love us, that you have come here to be with us, that you lived a perfect life in our place, that you died a sacrificial death that we deserve to die, that you secured eternal salvation for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in you. We thank you that you have drawn near to us, that you have spoken to us, and that you have given us insight into what you are doing and assurance that we will be with you forever. Lord, we love you, and we trust you, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.